Hi, Creative. It's Lauren here. I just want to remind you that if you love the podcast, the best way to support the show is by leaving it a rating and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And uh, another great way to support the show is by sharing it with a friend or posting about it on social media. If you do post it on social media, tag me at Lauren LaGrasso and at Unleash Your Inner Creative, and I will repost to share my gratitude. And remember to tag the guests too so they can also share. Okay, now let's get to the show. Are you getting impatient? Do you feel like it's just been so long since you started your creative journey? So many times we start the process of developing our creative careers, just waiting for this so-called big break, and we totally forget to find joy along the way. Today's guest has an amazing story of going from a struggling actress to a working actress to being featured in Vogue as one of the best dressed at the SAG Awards. She's a beautiful reminder to stay the course, to find joy along the way, and to find a group of artists that lifts you up and is part of your, as she calls it, group of early investors. Welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. I'm Lauren LaGrasso. I'm an award-winning podcast host and producer, singer-songwriter, public speaker, and creative coach. And this show is meant to give you the tools to claim the word creative, take fear out of the driver's seat, and love yourself enough to pursue whatever it is that's on your heart. On the show, we explore the creative process and journey, mental health, self-development, spirituality, and everything it means to be a human and become more human. Today's guest is an incredibly beautiful and talented person and actress, and her name is Michelle Meredith. Michelle and I met in college and have known each other throughout the difficult years of trying to make it in L.A., Michelle had a series of odd jobs before landing a recurring role on the Apple Plus series, The Morning Show. She's also appeared on shows such as I'm Dying Up Here and Blackish. I wanted to have Michelle on the show because she is one of the most open individuals when it comes to talking about success, the reality of a creative career, mental health, and making it. If you feel like a struggling creative in your own right, just know it takes a lot of patience, vulnerability, and usually a lot of creative heartbreak to get where you're trying to go. How you deal with those moments is everything, and today Michelle will walk you through how she got through hers and how you can too. Now here she is, Michelle Meredith. Michelle, I love you. I love you. (laughs) Welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative. Thank you. Thank you for being my friend and for being, you've been a huge supporter of this show. I try. You do. I love podcasts. You succeed. And I remember one time um, Jordan, my friend who you also know we went to college with, ran into you and you were like listening to my podcast when he ran into you. (laughs) I've always like looked at that and been honored by it. So thank you for being such a friend. I do what I can. But you kind of uh, were elusive for a long time. And I think that you need to account for, for this. I have asked you to come on the show repeatedly over the course of the past two years so many times. And you're always like, um, I don't know. Um, maybe when I do something. By the way, she's like acting on the biggest shows in the world. And she's like, maybe when I do something. Okay. Okay. First of all, I think many times really over a few years, it's more like two or three. It, okay. But isn't that many times? To hunt down a dear friend. Many. There's no hunting. We were in contact. There's DMs all the time. I know. I love your stories. I was always a... Thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. Um, It's true. But I think you have had some very fancy people on your podcast. You're a very fancy person, Vogue. 
Well, oh, we'll get but to like, it. Like you have like biz, like entrepreneurs and like bestsellers, and you know, and John, <laughs> who is actually who is very like fancy a now. big deal. Johnny just is so fancy. How many I'm like, reality I text shows? him and I'm like, oh my god, I wonder if he's busy. Oh my god, I can't it's wait to weird watch when someone you've known since you were 15 is now fucking famous. Like blow up. Yeah, he it's is really interesting. So famous for cake making. I know. <laughs> And also, he didn't make cakes three and a half years ago. Which is insane. I didn't I realize know. that it basically started, like, just now. going into COVID. Yeah. So, okay. You had often said no to me. So what what changed for you that you finally said, yes, I am stepping into my power and sharing my voice? I think it was a combination of things. Obviously, I was coming off the high of the SAG Awards, which was very fun. Let's do a side note. Michelle <laughs> is one of the recurring characters one of the main characters, if you ask me, <laughs> on the morning show. She's basically Jennifer Aniston's right hand woman. And don't list mislead. You're you're <laughs> I feel like I'm leading it's them perfectly. Very generous. They trust Thank me you. and they know it's true. <laughs> so she went to the SAG Awards. By the way, stunning, made every best dress list. Thank you. It was a huge effing deal. And so you went this year. And so you said, when you said yes to me, you were coming off the high yes, of that. Yes, I was coming off the high of that, really feeling myself and also getting a lot of, I don't want to say pressure, but like not in a bad way from my reps being like, we should ride this wave mm-hmm. publicity wise. Right. Like, and I didn't have a publicist when we went. So the fact that I got into so many That's publications and, and stuff for Best Dress List was crazy. It was crazy. So did you pitch yourself or did they just find... Okay, so let me explain something to you, listener, uh, about how this industry works. Most often, whenever you see somebody on any sort of list, they have been pitched in some capacity to get on that list. So the fact that Michelle Meredith, sitting next to me, star of the morning show, got on those lists (laughs) without pitching herself shows how damn freaking stunning she was that day. And she was, I mean, beyond goddess. So you you were feeling it. You're saying yes yep. more to career and yes, to life. Yes. And just try and trying to be a yes person. And I knew I know you. I know the podcast. I think I finally just had to get over the hump and out of I, I especially throughout quarantine and all these things. You're not in your best headspace. You're no. not feeling your your best self. And I think not that COVID is over by any means, but we're, we're, we're t- we are unmasked in a closet together, which is very exciting. It's what I've always dreamed of. <laughs> Um, But I want to get to how you got there because you're somebody that throughout the years, I feel like hasn't given yourself credit where credit is due. From the time we were in college, you were such a star. You got a role on Hung, which was a very popular show on HBO when you were what, a junior? I do you remember this. Or senior. I was a senior. It okay. was during Rent. But my you, spring, my you senior beat year. out a lot of heavy hitters for that role. <laughs> and like she's always, Michelle has always been on a trajectory, I thought to really make it in this industry and be a working actress and a a star. And I got frustrated watching from the outside because we don't talk every single DM, but like you don't get to catch up as much as I'd like to. But I felt frustrated on your behalf because I felt like you often didn't give yourself the credit you deserved. And I want to know how has this whole journey been for you and how, because acting is, I think, one of the toughest industries. It's why I don't do it very much anymore. It, it really broke my heart yeah. and I had to find a way to heal it through podcasting and music yeah. and I still act once in a while, but I can't make it my main thing. It's soul crushing. How did you, while you're doing that and like having the success, like just, just explain the emotional journey you've been on for the past decade in five minutes. <laughs> 
No problem. No problem. Um, I think, you know what? It's it's a lot easier to see from the outside. Everything from the outside looks better and shinier right. and more exciting, right? And we know that from social media and the way people present themselves. And even if you go on my IMDb, it looks like I work every day or every year. Yeah. But I don't. There have been long stretch periods where mm-hmm. I was unemployed. I'm unemployed right now, <laughs> technically. Technically. <laughs> so, so from the inside, it's so hard to really get the big picture and celebrate what you've accomplished. And this is kind of the first year, actually, that I've been able to really step back and see so many full circle moments of how I had built relationships over the last... This is I've been here nine years now. Right. And... I remember when you first came, I took you to a casting director workshop. Do you remember that? No. Yes. You visited and I took you to a casting director workshop with me. Oh, my God. Yeah. I feel so old right now that I like can't. Was it a? Was it um? Do you remember what it was called? Um, it was this woman. I don't know if she's even still with us. She was so sweet. Her name was Sarah Van Horn, and we went to a casting director workshop together. You acted, and this is when you were still doing mostly Adele impressions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which we will get to. <laughs> There's so much to cover. Yeah, but I remember when you were first like, I think I want to move out here because I don't want to play one character yeah, for the rest yeah. of my life. And I was like, that is so smart. I'm so glad you made that decision. Oh my, I do remember that yeah. conversation. Wow. Yeah. How far we've come. We've come so far. So, But <laughs> that's closet. the kind of thing. Like, even thinking about yeah. that and the impact of that conversation and the mm-hmm. impact of those relationships. And so now it's nine years in, I'm having these moments of meeting casting directors, meeting people in the industry that remember me from when you were years and years ago. Yeah. And everything that we do as actors feels so isolated. It feels so, you're just like sending self-tapes into the void, honestly, and yeah. often hearing nothing back. It just feels like you're throwing art into a trash can yeah called the internet <laughs> and hoping that someone takes it out of the trash can I don't know so so this is this is really the first time where I've settled into realizing I have I have built a career for myself yeah and I can kind of see the impact of all of those relationships and all those building blocks when you were in those in between moments like how did you not let the crushing feeling of not knowing when the next audition or job was going to come in take you away from the joy I found other hobbies. Ooh. (laughs) What is a hobby? I mean, especially because of COVID. Right. When we were shut down, I did what I think everyone did, which was paint every wall in my house, buy roller skates, try to learn calligraphy, try to draw, started writing. Like, I was doing all of these things to stimulate and find some kind of creative outlet, and it was incredibly cathartic especially because none of it was being monetized. I feel like so much of what we do, especially as actors, you are literally your own product. You're selling Mm -hmm. yourself essentially um, to tell stories and that can be really soul sucking. Yeah. It was just really nice to have little hobbies and little creative outlets that were just for me. And what do you feel like the hobbies taught you? Like how did that just like focusing on that for no particular end result, how did that affect the way you approach your career now? Um, It really helped reinforce the fact that booking and success, air quotes, success in my acting is not a direct indicator of my worth as a person. Ooh, and interesting (laughs) that as you had that realization, you started owning your success more and at least by the outside world having more success. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. 
Do you think it's because you were finally ready to hold it? I think so. I think, I mean, I'm in my 30s now and it's just, it's a different, yeah, it's a different level. <laughs> the Your way 20s. you perceive yourself, the way you uh, receive compliments and also compliment yourself. I'm willing to sort of be like, you know what? I did. I did do something. I have done stuff. Go me. Yeah. How do you go about receiving compliments now? I am actively working on just saying thank you. Right. And not doing the Midwest deflection of like this whole thing. <laughs> it was on sale at Kohl's. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Why do we have to do that? Like, it why? Is why? Such a bizarre knee jerk reaction yeah, that I have had to. Have it. Yes. Were you raised Catholic? My mom. Yeah, I was okay. raised Catholic. Okay. And then I kind of. Yeah. Quit halfway through. But I think it's also, it's like when you have Midwest meets Catholicism, mm -hmm. it's a nightmare. It's just like. It's a nightmare for trying to own your power. <laughs> I mean, just just forget it. Owning your power. You're a fucking sinner. You were born a sinner. And you're also from a state that smiles all their words because we're just so afraid of conflict. <laughs> oh. I still say ope when I. Oh, I say ope. So if, so if you don't know, if you're not from Michigan, um, when you knock into someone in Michigan, there's an unwritten rule that you must say, ope, and then yeah. apologize. Yeah. You don't just say, excuse me. There's an, oh, oh, excuse ope, me. Oh, sorry. Ope. We just bumped into each other. Ope. Yeah. I don't think ope is something you can weed out. I don't, think it'll, how many I don't know if I'll ever shake that. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, when it comes to compliments, yeah. there's, there's a pause in my brain that has to happen and I have to receive it and... And also return, because I love to return compliments. If someone that I admire or already respect is saying kind things to me, my other instinct is to turn it around on them. Mm -hmm. And the newest practice is accepting and receiving the compliment and just complimenting them in addition instead of going, me, what about you? You know, it's a very small right. difference, but you have a tendency to turn compliments into competition, which is very strange. Another yeah. weird impulse. Ooh, that's really interesting. I never thought of it from that perspective. Like if you don't hold what the person has said, you're weirdly unknowingly putting yourself in competition with that other person. Yeah. But it's like a competition in self-loathing. Yeah. Like I can't accept that compliment. You accept this one. No, yeah. me, not me, you. Yeah. And if the person doesn't engage in your fucked up tennis match that you're playing, you're like, wait, you just... what? Why didn't you engage with that? That's so weird. Yeah. Exactly. And... You walk away like, she's so full of herself. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> you created that. Yep. You walked into Not only did you walk into it, you served. Yeah. You served so the tennis It's ball. like a weird toxic cycle that yeah. you get yourself into if you don't just start owning what you're great at yeah and taking what you're given yeah yeah that's so true like my my therapist said something similar to me about that she's like you keep asking for more you keep wanting more from life and from the universe and then when the universe gives it to you you're like not like that but not like that so real you know because i don't know it's it's hard to accept other people's help mm-hmm and it was coming specifically and somebody was trying to help me and i thought i should be able to do it on my own mm. And so that really struck me. And now when something's offered to me, rather than immediately rejecting it, because I'm like, I don't want to put that person out. I'm like, maybe I can trust that that person was doing it because they actually wanted to do it. And if they don't, then maybe they'll learn a very valuable lesson about not offering something that they don't really want to yeah. do. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that so much because that's another thing you have to unlearn this distrust that someone like adults 
if someone offers you help, you have to believe and trust that they're offering it because they mean it and they right. want to. Right. And I have to remind myself, if they didn't mean it, that's a them problem. Right. They exactly. Sh- They'll learn a lesson. <laughs> yeah. They'll learn a great lesson. I learned that kind of early on because I think I felt early on like, oh, if I help someone, they should be really grateful and want to help me in return. I used to feel that way because I think I thought other people thought that about me. Mm. And then when people didn't act really grateful or help me in return, I realized, okay, Lauren, you can do nice things if you genuinely want to do them. But if you don't want to do them, don't do it because you can't expect anyone to give you something back. You can't even expect them to be grateful. You just can do the nice act because it's what's in your heart. And ever since I made that switch, I don't feel resentful ever. I feel like... You know, my energy exchanges with friends or colleagues, it's just cleaner. That's such a hard lesson to learn. It's it's hard to let go of that control. Right. Because you cannot control how someone receives what you give them or that they're not keeping tally the same way you are. I know. Like you said. I hate that I do that. And I, I still, it sucks. I still try to keep tally in some things like, oh, was that equitable? But it's like, it just doesn't matter. But it's hard not to get resentful yeah. when you're like, well, I took you to the airport. Why can't you take right. me to the airport? There's right. an unwritten understanding. That you- <laughs> yeah. No, but it's true. And I don't know. It's an ongoing lesson. I'm I'm listening to Codependent No More. I heard you mention this recently. It's, yeah, it explains a lot. Changing your life? It's changing my life. It explains a lot of how I've been in work relationships, in my past relationship, even like in things that are going on in this current relationship, like some of the power struggles I've engaged yeah. with. And like, yeah, just realizing that like, not only do you not have to, you can't and you shouldn't try to control another person's reaction to you has been mind blowing. I think I have the opposite issue. What? Like I don't I codependence is like an interesting animal and I am usually like a solitary creature. I have well, trouble accepting and receiving and bringing people into my space. That could is that, be codependence. Is it? Like the tricky thing about codependence is it seems like, oh, we're just like enmeshed and clingy. That can be a way of it. But a way of codependence is also never accepting help from anybody because you think you're so independent and like you're the one that like knows more. It's complicated. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it makes sense. There's, there's a whole book on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like, the, okay, she gives this example in the book it, where... She said yes to something she didn't want to do with her friend. So her friend asked mm-hmm. her to go to the apple orchard. She really didn't want to go to the apple orchard. She like postponed the plans with the person instead of canceling it, even though she knew she didn't want to go at all. So then finally she rescheduled for the next weekend when she was even more busy. And the friend said yes, because like they had initially said yes to it. They went, they're sitting there like picking out or standing, I guess you don't sit and pick apples. <laughs> sitting on my stool picking apples. No, they're standing there picking apples and the friend looked at her and was like, I really wish we didn't do this. I don't want to be here. I have two bags full of apples at my house. I did it because I thought you wanted to come. <gasps> and then she turned to her and she said, I really don't want to be doing this. I don't want to be here. I did it because I felt guilty and I thought you wanted to come. No. And that's an example of codependence, too. Mm-hmm. Because you're like, you're not making decisions because it's what's best for you or even what's best for the situation. You're doing it based on what you think the other person is thinking or feeling about you that okay that's fair I definitely I think I would not go to the apple orchard if I didn't want to but I would definitely get preoccupied with thinking believing that I knew what the other person wanted or was thinking that's yeah. definitely relatable I have this one lyric from a song I started writing it's like 
don't leave me alone because in my head I can write an award-winning screenplay of things you've never said and you'll never say. <laughs> that's that's so relatable. Yeah, it is. It's true. It's like, writing full arguments in the shower. Oh my god, <laughs> I am part of the Writers Guild of America in my shower because I can just go back and forth. It's really astounding the kind of dialogue I can come up with, the creativity. It really shows through then. I mean, it makes sense. What a waste. The shower. What a waste. I should write it down. Yeah. Get a get a waterproof something in your shower. You can just... <laughs> okay. So we've taken a slight diversion. Yes. Sorry. No, don't be. I think that was important. <laughs> I derailed us. No, you didn't. I did. It was a, it was a joint effort. A... Oh, now we're ping-ponging. Now we're doing the tennis Not me. Match. You. Not me. You. Um, anyway, it was mutual and I liked it. So you finally, through a lot of self-reflection, have stepped into the fact that you are a professional working actress and you deserve to be here. Oh, that's powerful when you say it like that. It's uh, <laughs> newsflash. It's true. It's like you're a professional or something. <laughs> Crazy. But like throughout this, you've also had day jobs. And I think something I found interesting about you is I feel like you found a day job you really liked. Mm-hmm. The, the dogs yeah tell me about that um I needed to get out of the house I'm very much an introvert and I could stay right. in the apartment and not leave and forget the outside world very easily so one of the best ideas I had was like well I love animals and I need some vitamin d so I'm gonna start working for a dog walking company um and I don't work there anymore but I still do sort of <gasps> freelance whatever walking dogs and house sitting dog sitting cat sitting Keeps me, keeps me active, keeps me young. <laughs> How do you think having that day job that you didn't dread, like it wasn't like some sort of soul-sucking office job or working in a restaurant where people were mean to you? How do you think that helped you in your creative life? I think I personally loved the flexibility. It worked for me. I don't know that I would recommend it for other people. I was very tunnel vision when I got out here and I did struggle with money a lot. Like mm. I by choosing to have these side hustles that were a little bit more chill, I had to make a lot of sacrifices in other places. Right. I was sleeping on a lot of couches. My rooms were living rooms with curtains. And when you say tunnel vision, you mean you were so focused on, I must be an actress and have yeah. no thing blocking yeah. me. I had that kind of early green belief that I had to be available for any audition at any time. Yeah. Which is silly, but it's really hard to get out of that mindset. When I had you that first when I moved start. here too. Do you think that they did that to us at college? Because I felt the exact same way. I was I like, know. I don't know what I'll be doing in spring, but I can't make plans yeah, for spring because I, I can't could have something. I, you don't. It's the first five years that I was out there. It was you're so afraid to travel. You're so right. you don't want to go on vacation. You don't want to make plans with friends because you're like, I might hear from or right. I might get that phone call. And then weeks go by and you feel stupid. Right. And it's this hamster wheel. Because yeah. you keep, I made the same choices for years and years where I wouldn't do something because I wanted, yeah, just in case. Right. Um, so I guess this is bad because things worked out for me. <laughs> and this is supposed, I'm supposed to be cautioning you against uh, well, existing this way. I think way. what you're doing, if you want to exist that way, it's fine and it yes. can work out. Yes. But knowing that there are other ways as well, mm-hmm. it's just good knowledge. Like you can absolutely have a normal office job. You can absolutely have a serving job. You can have any kind of job and still pursue an acting career. Mm-hmm. Um, what's for you will come to you. Mm-hmm. I just happened to be a crazy little gremlin who was like, I'll sleep on a couch and pay 
$400 a month with eight other roommates and make it work because I want to be available. <laughs> oh, crazy gremlin. We should make t-shirts. <laughs> Merch. I also am curious because there's something interesting that's happening now. And it, I'm like acutely aware of it because there's so many different people in my life from different walks of life who are having these huge moments. There's something interesting happening where people are starting to elevate at different levels, right? Yeah. And I think that there's a couple things that can happen. If you're in the per- the position of the person who's elevating, like especially given what we just said, Catholic, Midwest, guilt, <laughs> um, you can have some like guilt or like feeling bad about it because you feel like, gosh, like I want to take these other people along with me. If you're the person who's not elevating, you can feel bad about yourself because you feel like I should be further ahead. What's your advice for people who are in this position where there's people in their lives that seem to have be doing more things or they're the person who are seem to be doing more things and there's people that want to do more things like just tell me your assessment of the situation and if you're experiencing this at all let me see if I follow you're asking if I have advice for people who feel guilty that they're doing well or I think both because I think we've all both been in both positions right like I've been in a position where I felt like I was doing more than other people around me and I felt some level of guilt about that Mm. and I've been in a position where I felt like I was being left behind and I wasn't doing enough so I guess have you had an experience of that and if so what would be your advice for people in both positions I think if you are in the position where you feel like you're being left behind you especially I mean I can only really speak from an acting perspective but when it comes to acting I not to disregard my talent or my talent or anyone's talent but so much of this industry is luck it's like 50% luck yeah I right place right time preparation talent that's all well and good but so much is just like man I'm lucky that Matt and I we're in college together. Right. I'm lucky and that he's her manager. Yeah. He's, I was his first client when he came out here and started to pursue management. I we're still together working to this day. Like that's just so lucky. So if you feel behind, like let some of that go, you don't actually have all the control Yeah, and, and, and letting some of that pressure that you have on yourself go is probably going to allow you to, to operate more productively and, and make progress anyway. Yeah. And you don't know your timeline, you know, like there could be a reason, like for instance, with you, you know, if you had made it in those first five years when you were all like, I have to be an actress or else I don't know what's going to happen to me. If you had made it during that time, it could have been disastrous. Oh yeah. I think the pace at which my career has grown has been a gift. I would not have been able to handle if I didn't go to college and came straight to LA and like, I would, I would have crashed and burned years and years ago yeah again I mean I'm not even that woo woo but like what's for you <laughs> no what's come. meant for you will never yeah, miss you yeah and it will come to you in the right time as well yeah if you're not I wasn't ready for so many I would have loved to be a movie star five years ago but if I had been cast as the star of a movie I would have crashed and burned right I was you just if you're not ready the industry can tell so can your soul baby yeah oh it can tell you're telling on yourself yeah and then advice for someone who feels guilty that they're successful, basically. There's a really, I think it was Yaya Abdul-Mateen hmm. Jr. He played um, Dr. Manhattan in Watchmen. Okay. There's a speech. I think he, it was at the Emmys. One of those shows. He won an award and he did a speech and he specifically referenced early investors 
And he was referring to his friends and family that have been like pursuing the dream together. Mm. And a bunch of our mutual friends, the people that I hang out with the most, we all kind of reference that speech a lot in regards to our careers. And anytime we are one of us succeeds at something, it's everyone's success. It feels so much more communal because it's like we're all early, early investors. We all support each other. We're all helping each other with self tapes. We're all being in some each other's music videos or helping with the pilot that they're working on like it it's if you build a community i think it helps dissuade the guilt right i think that the people that you want to help have to meet you halfway mm-hmm. so you can't feel guilty for not doing a hundred percent of the work to lift up someone who might feel up like you owe them something right and they also have to ask because you're not gonna just naturally know you know yeah yeah. I have to do this thing for this person. Yeah. If they don't even ask, if the, you know, and I've given advice to people and then they just don't take it. And I'm like, okay, that's yeah. that's fine. But don't you, that's as far as I can take you. Yeah. You got to meet them halfway. So don't meet feel guilty. <laughs> that was <Okay>. beautiful. <laughs> I don't know that song. I mean, you should. It's a, it's a classic. <laughs> it's a classic and it's a hit, as you should know. You will now. You will now. I'll make you a mixtape with just please that do. on it. Burn it on a CD I'm for burn me, it on please. A CD. I'm gonna find a CD burner and burn it. You'll listen to it. You'll find a boombox. Okay, let's. I want to just talk about your trajectory too. Mm-hmm. So, you moved out here. You had been doing Adele impersonations. Well, is that the right way to say it? Yeah, I got. I was yeah Adele impersonator. She was an Adele impersonator in Vegas. Yeah. For like a hot second. For a hot, it was a very hot second. I was there for six months and honestly I had kind of moved out there and realized pretty quickly that that's not what I wanted to do. Right. I'd gotten a handful of gigs. Um, Funnily enough, they were all outside of Vegas, even though I moved there thinking this will be the hot spot. You may not be woo-woo, but the universe speaks to you. (laughs) It's like literally don't live here. It's so wild (laughs) when you can look back at the trajectory of your life and go, oh, yeah, that all worked out. If that hadn't happened, this wouldn't happen. But that's just chronology. Hindsight. (laughs) I think that's just how time works. Damn. Still, (laughs) it feels special. Shout out to time. Doing the most since forever. Just chugging along (laughs) since forever. Um, Yeah, so I did the Adele stuff uh, for a hot second. Finally made the stones throw to L.A. It's about four hours. And worked as a telemarketer for like the first year. I had no idea. Yeah. Did you do that at Michigan State? I didn't do it at Michigan okay, State, but I, I was a. Uh, I worked for the Geffen Playhouse, and I was one. I was a telemarketer for the Geffen Playhouse, selling uh, season subscriptions. Did people actually buy them? Oh yeah, M- a lot of it was renewals, which made okay. the job a lot easier because they were already people that were expecting a call from you. But I was. I thought, oh, I'll get a job that's adjacent to acting in theater, and at least I got to see a lot of free plays for like the first Ooh. year, and then. I also did fit modeling, which is just like your glorified mannequin um, and try on clothes and they fit it to your body, which was... That is pretty cool. Yeah. It was did a good it feel little... weird? It did. But funnily enough, I think it helped me get really comfortable with my body. Mm. I was already pretty comfortable and confident and whatever, but changing in front of a bunch of strangers and uh, having people nitpick every measurement on your body, not just like... Oh, your waist measurement is really big. It's like 
the measurement from your crotch to your belly button. Like the weirdest. And over time, I was just like, this is so stupid. Yeah. The fact that we care about these kinds of numbers in general. I mean, for making clothes, it's great. And I didn't care. But I was able to sort of separate, again, my self-worth from something like as arbitrary as good numbers versus. Yeah, exactly. So that was good. Did a little bit of like print modeling and stuff. And uh, what other weird jobs did I have? Oh, I was a valet. Oh. For an, an all-female valet company called Valet of the Dolls. That, that's <laughs> funny. Was it in the valley? Uh, it was everywhere, but I think the office was in the valley. Yeah. <laughs> that was a good gig. And during this time, I remember reading, so before I moved out here, I read Jenna Fisher's MySpace blog. Did you oh, ever read that? no. It was incredible. I and read her book. I did not know there was a MySpace blog. There was blog. a MySpace blog I think she probably based a lot of her book on, and she talked about her trajectory in the acting career. And like her first two years out here, she made like $2,000 from acting. And every year it would go up and up and up until finally, I think year eight or nine, she got the office. Right. Wow. But I'm curious what yours was and how like these little moments of glimmers of, is it happening, kept you going until this moment. It was incredibly slow growing. It wasn't really until... Matt moved out here maybe a year and a half after I did and decided he wanted to sign me that I booked my first SAG audition that he got me, which was Blackish. You booked the first one? Yeah. I think I had done like one other non-union like reenactment show or something uh-huh. prior to that, but that was like the first big audition that he got me for like a real project. <laughs> no shade to reenactment television. And Blackish was just really opened the door. And I was just green enough that I didn't know to be scared. I didn't really understand. So I just showed up and did my little. And you ended up in the trailer, right? Ended up in the trailer. And I think I I did a podcast yesterday and I said this. So I'm going to tell you too. But this is a very exciting, semi-exclusive. I don't know when. Breaking. Um, But they, that was the pilot for Blackish. Eight years later, they called me and asked me to come back for the series finale. Fuck yeah. So again, like crazy full circle, planting seeds, wow, building relationships from the beginning, coming full circle has been really special. Are you going to be a tour guide again? Or are you not allowed to? They're going to they're going to do a little uh, sandwiching of the bit, I guess. Cute. <laughs> I can't. They won't get mad, right? I'm promoting their show. I don't know, but if they do, we can cut it. <laughs> yeah. Who cares? Who cares? Who cares? I Yolo. don't regret it. Watch Blackish. Zero regrets. Um. <laughs> And so Blackish was the first, and then a lot of time went by. I mean, I had a lot of auditions that were nothing. I don't. I didn't even have a lot of auditions. I still don't have a lot of auditions. Hmm. Maybe two a month. Well, you book a lot though. Like, it all looks you really like need it. Is a high booking rate. <sighs> yeah, yeah. Percentage wise, I do okay. But the reality is, again, from the outside, it looks like I'm working all the time. But it's once a year. You know. Really smatterings i mean i didn't work after after morning show season one i didn't work for like two i didn't book anything for two years granted the pandemic was happening yeah well that was just before and yeah the pandemic did threw things for a loop i mean things ebb and flow no matter who you are and right and well weren't you on an hbo show you had a pretty big part in that like i remember watching oh yeah oh my god it's michelle and i'm dying up here and you had a big part you were like the main character's sister yeah that was uh, still probably one of the best experiences because it was the first time I really got to have a story arc that, I mean, every every role sort of supports the story, but this was the first time there was an emotional arc that my character was a part of and I got to have multiple scenes and and sort of build a relationship with another actor and that was a big turning point for sure. 
So I want to get your take on this because I did a random show on Lifetime right before I stopped pursuing acting really hard. Okay. It was called My Haunted House. It was like maybe a step above a reenactment Love show. it. But I got a co-star role. I played a cop. And I remember getting in there and doing the part and being like, this is what I've been fighting for. <laughs> yeah. To say five lines yep. around a bathtub where a ghost is supposed to be like this is what i've been just yearning for and dreaming of and it was kind of like a reality check for yeah. me moment where i'm like it's not worth all the sadness and upset and fear and weirdness i have going on absolutely to keep going for this and if i want to do it i need to make my own thing because yeah. that's how it's going to work for me but tell me when you and granted these shows that you're talking about they're much higher level than my haunted house. I mean, I mean no shade to my haunted house. <laughs> it was a great haunted house. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. But, yeah. But like how how did you find the joy in these like you're thrown into it? Like first of all explain what that's like because I actually haven't had a lot of actors on the show. Explain what it's like to be thrown into a set where people all already know each other and you're in there to say five lines. Uh, yeah, the smaller the part, the harder it is. Right. I mean, the workload might be bigger if, if you're a leading role in something, but it is incredibly difficult to show up. And you really are a guest in someone else's house. Right. You're here to serve a very specific purpose in the story, whether it's here's your coffee or, you know, excuse me, ma'am, whatever the dumb lines are. Yeah. <laughs> um, Pardon. It's, it, you're you're terrified. Because there's so much pressure. You are only going to get one or two takes. You're going to spend more time. You're going to get there before everyone else does. And then you're going to sit in your trailer. And they're going to rush you to get your makeup done. And then you're going to sit in your trailer for more time. You're not going to have any idea, really. And it's just hurry up and wait. Right. Hurry up and go. And so you're right. the emotional distress is next level. And then you show up and they spend a shit ton of time. Can I swear on this? Oh, yeah. Spend a shit ton of time on the stars coverage and then they'll turn the camera around and you'll have one or two chances to get yours right. And it's it's terrifying. You're walking on eggshells the whole time. Okay, so you're that's the situation and that's a really hard situation. It's really hard. How did you still like find the love through that? I got really lucky in that my earlier jobs, like because Blackish was the pilot. Everyone was really nice to me because it was the first episode. Mm -hmm. I did an episode of Young and Hungry, and it was also the first season, first couple weeks. So there were people treating me. They thought that I was like a recur or something. And so they could see the future. Yeah. People were incredibly nice to me. Not that people aren't nice to you if they're years in, but the There's energy... a chance of that, though. Or it's not even that they're not nice. It's just they're all comfortable with each other. Like, yeah. I always think about, OK, if I was one of the people on the off and I've heard that the people on the office were like the nicest people in the world. But if I was one of the people on the office and I came in and everyone else was breaking and I was supposed to be like yeah. a straight role, I would have felt so weird. And like, or what if I broke? Yeah. You know, it's terrifying because you don't want to rock the boat you don't want to stand you want to be noticed for all the right reasons Mm -hmm. you don't want to stand out because you screwed something up because you're a nobody who's here for one day you know all the terrible things we tell ourselves none of this is true but it is but you tell yourself that it's hard not to Mm -hmm. and you just exist in this sort of apologetic stance i mean i did i did a one day on gray's anatomy and that's a well-oiled machine it's a completely different energy show Mm -hmm. wow so co-star is like you have about five lines right it's less about lines these days and more about money, honestly. Oh, okay. Technically, my role on I'm Dying Up Here, which was multi-episode, was a co-star. 
you seem like a guest star. I agree. <laughs> but based on budget and how many guest stars they have allotted for certain episodes, casting has to be has to allocate roles that way. Right. So it, it used to be one to five. They used to call them under fives. Right. I remember For co-star. That. And now it's it has a lot more to do with what they can afford. Right. So you still found the joy in creating a character, even with these smaller parts. How would you approach these smaller parts? It really depends with something like, I'm like trying to think through my resume. It's so weird. <laughs> the worst memory. Um, with something like Blackish, I guess, since we're talking about it, she's a tour guide. And I'm here to serve a story. It's, it's a bit. It's a right. joke. I'm a tour guide. I'm acting like we're on a zoo tour talking about a black family, right? So the character building and what made it fun for me was figuring out the cadence and the voice and how to be the most obnoxious. If you look to your left, you'll see the mythical and majestic black family. Like you get to do all these. That's the fun that I have in a small part like that. And not all of them are like that. Again, sometimes it's just like, hey, sir, here's your coffee. Like then you're just there to get to witness being on set and that's the gift sometimes it's not a creative experience I think that for some people that especially start in theater Mm. the acting experience in theater is different you get rehearsal time like weeks of rehearsal time with these people to develop relationships you get to tell the story in order yeah you get to experience that emotional journey the way it's meant to be yeah (laughs) whereas for television and film everything's out of order everything is spaced out it's it's the hurry up and wait that we mentioned before. Right. Um, so you have to find it's a different kind of creativity and you have to find other points of entry in terms of fulfillment. Right. Because of that. Right. And I think a lot of people come from these conservatories or come from theater and want to do film and television because obviously it's so fun to consume and it reaches more people. Right. And more lucrative. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mm. But it it's not... You don't get those gifts mm. um, as quickly. I, I think that's, that was the hardest part was I do miss having rehearsal time to really develop relationships. Mm. The last, I just shot a movie in Joshua Tree in like November. <sighs> yes, she did. And that was probably the closest experience to what you would want your filming experience to be because it, it felt like summer camp because we were all staying holed up in a hotel and working 10, 12 hours a day. Were you a star oh in the movie? Yeah. <gasps> I mean, it's an, an all-female uh, ensemble comedy. Um, so there's five of us, I want to say. Okay. Um, so I'm one of the five. Wait, was this the thing you were doing with Rumor Willis? Yeah. Okay. My Divorce Party, coming soon somewhere. Okay. Directed by Heidi Weitzer. That's yeah. wild. Like, how does it feel to now be working with and even friends with people we've watched for a long time? Amazing. I mean, I've at this point had a chance to meet of varying degrees of celebrity and successful actors and whatnot. And the the best feeling is realizing how kind everyone is. Yeah. And rumor was a blast. And she stayed in the Best Western with us. You know what I mean? Like, we were all in the trenches together. And she was such a good sport. And by the end of the, uh, end of the shoot, we were, like, sending her gifts of her parents. Like... <laughs> We, she was just so down and, yeah. and we're all so close. I texted her last night. I yeah, it, it throwing... seemed like you were really friends. Yeah, it was yeah. the best experience and the best. This is a huge pivot, but I don't I know. Love pivoting. We're, why not? We're pivoting. Um, we're dancing. The first series regular I ever booked was an all-female ensemble comedy. Was that the Pee Wee Herman thing? No, no. Okay. This was a, a pilot presentation that ended up getting sold to a network. And when they sold it to network, they recast me. Oh, 
And How did that feel? How did you deal with that? It was so devastating because it it was an amazing experience because it was all women ensemble comedy directed written by shot by stunt coordinated wow. by like such an awesome experience to be on location for a week with all these amazing creative hilarious women and when that happened you not only feel like you lost a job but you lost people you thought were like your family gonna yeah. be your family and you sign the paperwork and you're expecting a certain amount of money and it was it shook me and it took probably two years for me to to recover. When was this? What year? I want to say it was 2015. Wow. But I have no sense of time. So right. Especially now. somewhere. Yes. Everything is blurry. But I think it was pre I go. Everything's either pre Trump or pre or post COVID. You know, those are like my markers. Yeah. Um, and I think it was before that. So it it shook my confidence with comedy. And the reason I brought it up largely was because when I got to do this movie, it felt like a full circle kind of closure. Mm. Because so it was like it was, a healing. Yeah, hugely healing. Because wow. I thought I, I it made me really doubt my skills as a comedic actress. Did they give you a reason why that happened? <sighs> I mean, they things were said, but it was all through a filter of like my agents who I loved, but they... <laughs> They're like, they love I you. Was, it's just not going to work. I was very fragile at the time. And one of my agents was this this larger New York man with a very thick accent. He's like, oh, they just uh, they said they wanted someone funnier, which, of course, like was the Why worst thing to say. say that? I thought you were going to tell me they protected you. <laughs> no. What the fuck? I mean, I'm sure other things were said that were kinder. But when you're on a conference call, like I was at home. <laughs> this is the worst. I was at home. I had surprised my parents for Mother's Day weekend. So I thought that I was waiting on a call to hear that we got picked up to network. And I was going to tell my biggest gift was not only visiting my mom, but getting mm -hmm. to say, Mom, you don't have to worry about me anymore. Like, I got the job, like the big job. I'm going to make serious regular money. And then I got the call <laughs> and I had to come out into the kitchen and hug my mom and be like, I, they fired me. <laughs> I love you. It was devastating. devastating. And so the only thing I internalized was they wanted someone funnier. But I think... After talking to like the creator, all the girls had called me after that point and I got to discuss, you know, everyone was so kind and everything. And there were a number of reasons. I think the biggest reason was that network just wanted to have have an effect on it. Mm -hmm. well, Some suit wanted to get their paws on it and be able to put their stamp on it and say that they did something. And, you know, you got a lot of cooks in the kitchen and people are going to want to change stuff. And I just was the one that got the short straw. And that's OK now. At the time, I was just too young and too inexperienced to know better. Right. Um, and I also had no idea how often it happens. Yeah. If you Google or go on Deadline and search recast, it you actually it's incredible. Go on the show Dead Eyes. Have you What's ever heard Dead of Eyes? it? This guy was cast opposite Tom Hanks, got the role, and Tom Hanks recast him because he said he had dead eyes. Wait, I heard about yeah. this. <laughs> and he's made a whole podcast about it, being like interviewing people like, do you think I have dead eyes? Is that eyes? why I saw a headline that said Tom Hanks apologizes for saying this man had dead I swear Probably. to God that was like recently. I just Yeah, I think he even interviewed Tom Hanks' son. Oh. It was like, so do you think my eyes are dead? <laughs> and this podcast has become huge. It's like, it's a hit That's podcast. so cool. And now he's doing great with his career. And he had had a lot of acting success after that, too. I'm sure. But, but there's so many great stories like that. I yeah. mean, even Jenna Fisher got mm -hmm. recast. And she writes about it in her book. She did show? She did a pie. I think it was, it's Matt LeBlanc's multicam on CBS. What is it called? Oh, The Last um, Man Standing? No, that's because that's Tim Allen. Oh. There's a different one. It's, oh, Man with a Plan, I think. 
I think. She got recast that recently? She was, the, she was the wife on that show, and they did a bunch of test um, audiences, and all the test audiences just said, I just don't think Joey would end up with Pam. I don't believe Joey and Pam together. Isn't that bonkers? That's bonkers. So she, she ended up getting fired. Jenna Fisher, post of uh, The Office. Yeah, crazy. That's so it happened, and it can happen at any point, which is comforting and devastating to realize you can pursue a career like this. And, yeah. and you you could get so far. You could get the audition. You could get the callback. You could get the producer session, the chemistry read. You could get the test. You could book it. You could sign on the dotted line for six years and still lose the job. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with that bonkers feeling of knowing some parts of it truly are out of your hands? I think it's the the pairing of comfort and knowing that it could happen to anyone and the community the comfort mm-hmm. of community because i i have a roommate who's a writer and we just can commiserate over anything that's right. insane about this industry because every aspect of it is painful yeah um and accepting that you don't have control right provides a sense of control weirdly sure i'm like i get that, that i there's nothing i can do about it, it has nothing to do with me if if they recast me and it's someone so different from what I have to offer, it's actually easier to accept. Mm-hmm. If I audition for something and I don't get the role and I watch the show and it's a 60-year-old black woman or something, why would I feel bad about that? Right. I would be like, oh, I can't do what that woman can do. Mm-hmm. I cannot bring to the story what that woman can bring to the story. Right. So. So true. Why be upset? So you just like detach from that piece of the outcome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also let yourself be sad when you're sad. Like, that's okay, too. Yeah. How do you deal with disappointment? Depends on the level of disappointment. With, with the show that recast me, I definitely, I, I, I wasn't exaggerating about the two years. There's probably a year where I pretty consistently had some, like, really dark times laying in right. bed all day. And it ebbs and flows and whatever. But you just get it. You, you grow and grow a thicker skin and... Yeah, like, what do you physically do, though, to deal with the disappointment? Like, do you journal? Do you let yourself, like, crazy cry? Is it just that laying in bed and, like, being tender with yourself? I think I'm very big on, (laughs) this might be weird, but when I'm having, like, a very low depressive episode or something, I'm, like, really losing my mind. I like to either write in a journal my craziest, darkest thoughts um, or even film myself if I'm not up to writing. That's really helpful. And talk out loud yeah. what I, what is going through my brain and, and what my my depression or sadness is telling me. And then when I'm feeling clarity after I wake up in the morning, watch that back or read that back. And my clearer brain is able to go, well, that's not true. Yeah. You were detached from reality in these moments and that's okay. <laughs> It's true. I actually did an entire episode about this very did you? thing. I said it's called Lessons Learned from Hysterically Crying. And what I did was I was in an insane moment. I was like very, 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 very sad and feeling mm-hmm. one of these moments. And I recorded myself. Actually, for me, it's help- more helpful to listen back. Yeah. Because I recorded myself and I listened back. I'm like, this is psycho. Yeah. Like The things you're saying are actually not even slightly grounded but we're, in it, when you're in that fog yeah. it feels so real yeah but it's so important to do things yeah. like that because it gives you perspective and it, you know you can be more tender with yourself but also realize when you're spinning on a thought instead of grounded in whatever the reality yeah. is and and i don't know if this happens to you but over time i'm able to 
grasp at that thread when I'm in that dark place. Mm -hmm. So even though I'm feeling and experiencing all of that darkness, there's that tiny thread from all of the practice I've done of reviewing it in the lighter times and going, that's not real. Yeah. So I can just hold on to it. The tiny part of my brain that's still... (laughs) functioning before the whole thing like, unravels yeah yeah like yeah. I have something anchoring me or not anchoring I guess this is a thread a balloon or something <laughs> I have something to hold on to that's like you're not this isn't the end of the world you're right. gonna be okay like you just need to usually it's sleep usually yeah. I just need sometimes or I'll food. sleep for a whole day or like, yeah food eat works, a meal you know like I forget that food works like, there was one time I remember I was driving. Uh, I, I have my hairdresser in Orange County because she's way cheaper, by the way, if you ever need a good person. Oh, she's great. Yeah. But she's cheaper and just, like, better than anyone I found here. And I was driving there, and I was having one of those spiraling moments mm-hmm. where I'm like, everything's wrong. I'm not doing enough. Like, my life's out of control. Like, I don't have – I didn't – at the time, yep. I was single. Don't have anyone in my life. Mm. And then I went to In-N-Out, and I ate, and it worked. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I'm all right. I was just hungry. Yeah. What the hell? Like, why don't people like, tell wait you? Wait a second. And it's so embarrassing because it's yeah. truly like a toddler moment. Yeah. Like, oh, I was truly just having a tantrum and self, like a self-pity you don't party. don't recognize it because no. it's not external. Like, toddlers yeah. scream and throw their arms and cry. But when you're having just a spinning, it's all internally. So it's like maybe next time. And I still don't remember this when I'm spinning. But next time I'm feeling like that, like drink a glass of water and have a bite to eat. Yeah. And see if it gets better. Go for a walk. Get a little like I hated when I was really struggling with depression as like a teenager. I hated that my parents would be like, go for a walk. Get us some exercise. You don't understand. Serotonin. uh, Endorphins. (laughs) And you're just so in the dark dark of it. You're just like, I hate everyone. I hate you for suggesting that. And I hate exercise. And I don't want to. But like. It works. It is. It's so annoying that it works. (laughs) You just made me realize something. You were one of the first. So a big pillar of this podcast is mental health because I think it's something we all deal with in some way, especially when you've chosen creativity as your life. But you were one of the first people I ever heard talk openly about mental health and mental illness. Are you kidding? No. In all this time? In all this time. In college. Wow. People weren't talking like this in college. Right. And and it wasn't that we were in college. It was just the world wasn't ready to talk. It was still growing. And I think the world was catching up to the reality that people it's normal. Yeah. (laughs) It's so normal that everyone has it. Yeah. And it's better to address it than bury your trauma and pass it along. (laughs) How did you have that wherewithal as such a young woman to be able to talk so openly about it? Um. I I think I can say this. My brother had a little bit of trouble in college. He's mm. two years older than me. And I like and they didn't really talk to me about it, but I remember hearing sort of in passing, like, oh yeah, well your your brother's taking some kind of antidepressant, whatever. So it was a little bit normalized in my family already, which really helped. Yes. Really helped. Um, so when I started feeling crazy which I think I had always struggled with it but didn't really put a name on it or hit a wall until senior year of college where I really broke down and was like something's wrong I'm having trouble functioning right where my mom was like okay we're gonna get you to therapy and we're gonna figure out what's going on and I was able to start a little bit of medication and it was I'm just I'm grateful and lucky again that I had family that supported it and was willing to talk about it and not stigmatize it and since then that was a time where the conversation nationally was changing. Just a little bit. 
And it's really in the past five years, I feel like it's exploded. I remember when I first started therapy here in LA, that was 2012. I felt very ashamed of it. You're kidding. Because mental health was not spoken about in my family Mm. at all. Do you think that's a God thing? I think it's an Italian religious thing, I should say. It's like a... We don't talk about that. I mean, there was a tremendous, like my grandmother, my grandmother's mother. So my great grandmother had, um, was like committed to, they called them insane asylums back then. Like, right. Oh my gosh. She was in a mental health facility and, um, probably had bipolar disorder Mm -hmm. undiagnosed and there was a ton of trauma around it. So I think maybe there was a fear of, if you acknowledge it, it exists Mm -hmm. and, we don't want that to exist I see. because that causes pain. Yeah. So I don't know. It's very interesting, but I just really, I do remember you being like, I'm depressed. And I had never really heard anybody say that before. Aww. And I was like, I didn't know what was happening at the time, but I look back on that. And that was kind of a pivotal moment for me of being like, oh, maybe there's a way to talk about these things. I had no idea. I didn't either until we just started talking. Oh, my God. I have a very distinct memory. We were in the living room of your apartment that you had with Jen. Mm -hmm. And you were talking about it. Yeah. I was like, I've never heard anyone talk this way. Oh, that makes me so happy that that helped you in any way. It did help me. I think I didn't know it at the time and I didn't know it really until just now. But that was like the, the sliver of opening that allowed me to start thinking about those things and really asking myself like, okay, is what's going on normal? Like, could I get help? I love that. So tell me how you're feeling right now about everything. Just like about career. How I'm feeling about career stuff right now. I'm feeling incredibly proud and accomplished and cautiously optimistic. Yeah. I feel the most confident in the work that I do and I trust myself to do it, which Ooh. is a really great place to be. That's amazing. And okay. So I'm going to go back to a question I used to ask on the show quite a bit, but doing it in a different way. Okay. So if you and the Michelle that moved here nine years ago, were standing in the same room looking at each other. Okay. What do you think she would say to you now and why? I feel like you're Barbara Walters right now. That's such an emotional question. And the okay, I the first thing that came to mind was wow. Like we did it. I was <laughs> Don't do that. I'll cry if you cry. <laughs> I'm just thinking about how proud I am. Oh, honey. <laughs> and like how much you inspire other people too. It's like you know, there's some people when they make it, you're like, oh, you're so annoying because they're just like not good people. Yes. yes I know. But it's like exactly every time mean. I see you do something, I'm like, oh, wow. Like oh. she's doing it and she's going to make this industry a better place. And she's like paving the way for everybody else to to get through in their own way and and do the things that they say they want to do. And like, I think you've been such a catalyst to see that goodness can be paid back. And I'm just thinking of like, you came here and I felt like you didn't believe in yourself in the way you deserve to be believed in. And just the fact that now, like, not only have you done the things, but you're loving yourself the way you deserve to be loved. I'm so proud of you and inspired by you. That's so kind. That's so kind. And I'm going to accept and thank you for that incredibly 
generous. I, it pull it together. That means the world to me, and anything that I can do to inspire anyone in their creative journey is like it's it's everything. Yeah. If someone sees me, if anyone can see me doing something and go, well, if she can do it, I can do it. That's yeah. the best. Yeah, and I do think that that's why you resonate with people and and why the kids on the TikTok are starting to like join the Michelle train <laughs> because you are you never put yourself above anyone. You're very accessible while still loving yourself and believing in yourself and like I just think it's so beautiful to watch that on this journey. And so my final thing okay. with you is if you could say anything to that young girl, what would you say to her and why? I mean, I'm sure this is what everyone says, but it's going to be okay. You're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. When I first moved to L.A., I had worked Jimmy John's. I was making sandwiches in Vegas. Like, that was... They're so good. They're so good. I hate them on every break. I'm still not sick of it. That's so good. But I was, like, lost and basically, you know, making this huge jump and changing trajectory I was too afraid to admit to myself that I wanted to be an actress in film and tv when we were in school I would tell everyone I was going to move to New York and do theater because it was easier for everyone else to process yeah well they also didn't really give us tools to move here that too that too (laughs) they didn't have the tools because they didn't do it and it's fine in both in in the department sure Mm -hmm. but even within family and stuff people have this preconceived idea of what uh, a tv star or movie star is supposed to look like right right and so I would I was lying to them. I was lying to myself to protect myself from those weird reactions. I I dallied in the Adele impersonating thing. I moved to Vegas, which was just I was just preventing or prolonging the inevitable, which was my dream and my purpose to be in L.A. and pursue what I wanted to do. Oh, Michelle, you just dropped a major <laughs> truth bomb. It's like the things that we do to circumvent the judgment of others. Yep. When really what we're doing is preventing ourselves from being our most authentic self and going forth on the path that we feel called to. Yep. So if this is resonating with you listening right now and you feel like you could use that advice from your younger self or your older self, just remember what Michelle just said. Don't make a decision in order to protect yourself from the potential judgment of somebody else make a decision that's in line with who you are and if you keep going forward with it and if it keeps feeling good and if it keeps feeling warm then you will eventually get where you're meant to go and where you're meant to go is toward yourself i love it oh my god yay you just spun that into a beautiful chapter of a book that you're gonna write one day you know I want to write a book and I'm working on one from the show. This girl. Intuitive. Intuitive. <laughs> Universe. Co- why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? I'm going to do it. But this is my sign. This is a sign I needed. I love yeah. you so much. I I'm sorry you. we had so many technical no, issues. There were so many technical issues. Blast. You don't hear them on the back end, but my God. <laughs> Woo. We are so cozy in this closet. We are. I'm so glad we got to talk. Yeah. I adore too. you. I I'm adore proud you. of you. Proud of you. So I'm proud of proud of our past children people. <laughs> wow. It's good we're ending now. I'm really losing it. We've been in this closet <laughs> a long time. All right. I love you so much. Love you too.
Thank you so much for listening to my guest, Michelle Meredith. For more info on Michelle, follow her at Michelle Meredith one on Instagram and on all social media platforms. Thanks so much to Unleash producer Emily Shulmanovich. You can follow her at We Can't Find Emily. Thank you to Liz Full for the show's theme music. Follow her at Liz Full. And again, thank you. If you like what you heard today, remember to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Share the show with a friend and post about it on social media. Tag me at Lauren LaGrasso and at Unleash Your Inner Creative, and I will repost to share my gratitude. Also tag Michelle at Michelle Meredith One so she can share too. My wish for you this week is that you find the joy in the journey and in the small moments and the small roles. Whatever your creative life is, you deserve to feel it now. Don't wait until you quote unquote make it. I love you and I believe in you. Talk with you next week.